How Your World Works is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code WORLD. And How Your World Works is sponsored by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. And right now, you can get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com world and using the promo code world. They say that every kid's supposed to have an astronaut phase, but somehow I skipped mine. I didn't get a dinosaur's phase either, and I, I kind of think my childhood was just one long awkward phase, but that's another story for another time. My point is that I made it all the way through childhood without realizing how cool space is. Eventually, I got to see the surface of the moon up close through a telescope, and I got my astronaut phase. But recently, Popular Mechanics got to go see the movie The Martian, and I think that might be the next best way to realize how cool it might be to be an astronaut. It's the story of Mark Watney, played by Matt Damon, who gets stranded on the red planet after a mishap in a dust storm. The movie's kind of like a puzzle box of science. Watney tries to stay alive, NASA tries to figure out how to keep him alive, and his crew tries to figure out how they can make it back to him to rescue him. If you didn't think astronauts were cool before, you will after watching this movie. And we've decided to delve into the science behind it. So on today's show, I'm going to talk to Dr. Jim Green, the director of NASA's Planetary Science Division. He advised the filmmakers on everything from dust storms to space cars. Then I'll sit down with executive editor Peter Martin and editorial assistant Lara Sorokonich to talk about the logistical challenges between us and the first time an astronaut sets foot on the planet. Finally, we're going to play a special Martian edition of Stupid or Amazing, because it turns out that not everybody going to Mars is as amazing as NASA. I'm Kevin Dubsik, and this is How Your World Works. Okay, so the new movie, The Martian, comes out October 2nd. To find out what it took to accurately portray life on Mars, we called up Dr. Jim Green, NASA's Director of Planetary Sciences. He helped Director Ridley Scott recreate life on the Red Planet. Jim, thanks for uh, sitting down and talking with me. My pleasure. So, uh, what's it like being the technical advisor for a movie? Do you just get a a phone call from Ridley Scott one day and he says, hey, I I need to figure out how to build Mars? Well, you know, uh, that wasn't far from the truth. uh, you know, I was in the cafeteria in, in May of last year, walked out, and the public affairs uh, uh, person at NASA headquarters that deals with uh, the movie industry came up to me and said, could I talk to Ridley Scott at 2 o'clock? <laughs> and I said, uh, D. Ridley Scott? And he said, yeah. I said, sure, I'll clear my calendar. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, I, uh, one of my favorite movies is Alien. You know, I must have seen it 50 times. So, uh uh, it was easy for me then in the afternoon to talk to Ridley and a team of uh, four or five other people that he had there. We chatted for about uh, an hour and a half, and, and at the end of that, I realized I only really answered about half these questions, but I knew who I could bring in to answer the other half. And so uh, we started then a process of uh, uh, connecting Ridley and uh, his team to the right experts and, and then started some tours of uh, some of the NASA centers. Yeah, so, so uh, what kinds of questions were you able to answer just out of your own uh, professional expertise? Well, Ridley really wanted to know um, uh, how harsh Mars really is. 
and and whether the the book depicted it appropriately. And and I hadn't read the book, but I certainly know what Mars is like. And you know, a temperature extreme in one day is anywhere from 120 to 140 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh wow! In in one day, you know, so so he's battling huge temperature extremes. Um, the, the, although uh, one of the unrealistic parts of the book, and therefore the movie, because Ridley uh, wanted to follow the book uh, uh, closely, is the initial dust storm. And, um, uh, you know, uh, in, in the author, Andy Weir, uh, has said, and I've talked to him about this a couple times, that he really, you know, this is a man versus nature, uh, yep. where, where nature is the unfamiliar environment of Mars itself. And... Um, uh, he wanted nature to get the first punch in. So even though the, the first death storm is very unrealistic, never it's never been that strong uh, uh, on Mars in, in the last, uh, you know, maybe several hundred million years. Do we actually forecast weather for Mars, or is that just a matter of, like, watching satellite images? That's a good question. And the answer is, yes, we can. We have um, what we call a Mars Climate Modeling Center, it runs on supercomputers at the Ames Research Center, one of NASA's centers uh, in um, um, California. And this particular group uh, brings in Mars data and can predict the climate on Mars, wind speed, uh, uh, the dust storms. They can predict uh, temperature extremes. Um, it, it has uh, some fabulous capabilities. Uh, but with that said, um, it's still one of the early versions NASA worked with NOAA to get the global climate model of the Earth up and running. And, you know, and, it, and in the late 60s and 70s, uh, they were still struggling with the physics and everything else. Uh, and these are predictive models. And that's about where we are right now with Mars. Okay. But we're, we're moving along rapidly. Okay. So, and, and by the way, so I assume that all the locations, uh, like the geographic locations mentioned in the film, are those are actual locations that we've mapped out on the surface. Yeah, uh, there are. You, uh, in fact, um, uh, you can easily go to some of the maps. Uh, one of the one of the ones that I really like that's available publicly is uh, called Mars Trek, and that's M A R S T R E K. And I can give you the exact uh, web address, but you can Google it. And 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 that has uh, uh, some really excellent. Uh, high-resolution imaging, but also has some background information, a whole series of, uh, of uh, information that allows you to, to become more geographically uh, familiar with the tremendous vistas that are on Mars today. Yeah, there are some just, I mean, it's like watching, watching like a classic Western or something, some of the vistas in that movie. Yeah, you're right. You know, Mars has just some enormous vistas. It's got huge canyons and tremendous shield volcanoes. It has an ancient shoreline. You know, um, three billion years ago, half of the northern hemisphere was covered in water. You know, Mars was much more Earth-like then than it is today, and it's, it's undergone enormous climate change, where a significant amount of the water in the ocean yeah. has evaporated away, but it's also gone underground. We now know that Mars is trapped an enormous amount of water, and that's a that's a very important point because uh, it's a resource for humans, but it also, um, uh, from a scientific pr- perspective, is uh, is really exciting because uh, uh, everywhere we go on Earth, where there's water, there's life. So, yeah, so uh, Mars, 
Oh, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I, I was just going to ask. So, is that water available as a resource? I mean, I don't think in the in the film he never takes advantage of that. At least if it's in a form where he could have accessed it. Right, and and part of that is because Andy got the book done in 2011, and and he said he wanted to get it out before Curiosity landed on Mars, and and Curiosity landing on Mars, what it's found is it, it brings in uh, soil, it, it, it bores holes into uh, uh, the rock and the, and the clays and, and the other minerals that are there and, and, and samples those in great detail. And it's found out that there's a significant amount of moisture in the soil. It's also found nitrates. And nitrates huh. are very important for fertilizer. So in reality, it's a lot easier to grow food in the soil that we know Mars has today than, than because we didn't know what uh, the soil was like uh, until Curiosity actually landed. So we're making enormous strides, continue to make that. In the movie, he's got what seems to me at least like a pretty cool vehicle that he's able to use. And um, from, what, from what I understand, the rovers that are up there right now, you know, the, the wheels have been a little bit torn up by rocks on the surface. I'm curious how, how realistic the vehicle was that he has in the film. The mock-ups of the uh, human rovers are indeed very large. They're massive. Yeah. They, have, uh, they, they look indeed, have a look and feel a little much, uh, very, you know, actually very much like the movie does. Uh, the front of it is more of a round dome. Uh, it will seat several astronauts. Uh, they actually uh, come into the rover from behind the cab, uh, get out of their suit, and then can actually then literally sit down with the suit actually hanging outside the vehicle, and, and then you don't bring dust into the vehicle. So there's a couple features that we have that uh, aren't illustrated in the movie, but, uh, but indeed we've designed the rovers um, uh, to be uh, 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 big service vehicles. Would we design uh, different vehicles that were specialized for different landing locations or different types of terrain or tasks on the planet? Yeah, I think we will. I think that, uh, that, that's exactly right. For instance, there are um, uh, locations in, in uh, Ballas Marineris where we actually see water uh, weeping out of these crater walls and running down the sides of, uh, of the valley. We're going to want to go up that. We're going to whether we 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 translate it with a rover or we actually use a a a, a drone and go on, fly up around it, take a look at the area, and come back with detailed observations. I mean, there's going to be a whole variety of of systems we'll use. So, in terms of working with Ridley, were there any things that surprised you about? what it's like advising on a Hollywood film? I mean, were there times where you, you or your, somebody on your team explained something and they came back and they were like, well, that's, that's just not really exciting enough? Uh, no, it, wasn't, it was never like that. Um, it was really uh, more of um, uh, them wanting to know, uh, them understanding uh, what we had to tell them, um, uh, allowing them to ask any questions at any depth they wanted. And then, the, and then uh, he had to make decisions on uh, what he was going to implement. Um, you know, and, that, and all that's about, of course, is um, you know I've got a certain amount of time, and there's a schedule associated with it, a certain amount of budget, and a certain look and feel I want to do. And, and so I'm going to have to make some compromises as you go along. Yeah. And the movie really provides a, a, a great, a great look and feel about it that makes it familiar to me. That then is an exciting story. 
Now, you know, what I also like about it is it's not just the, the Mars and the technology. There is some really great human interactions that go on yeah. that are representative of, um, of what I see in NASA. When um, Mark Watney uh, comes back to the hab, uh, recognizes he's alone, sits in front of his GoPro and lists the ways he could possibly die, and he's really depressed. Uh, then, then you can just see the science and engineering part of his brain kick in, and from then on, he doesn't look back, okay? He sees this huge challenge in front of him. He breaks it up in little pieces, and then he figures out how to conquer each and every one of those. And it's that kind of determination, the solving problems I see in NASA all over the place. You know, we can be good as engineers, we can be good as scientists, but one of the things that really makes a difference is, is a drive, is the ability to, to, to accomplish what may look like the impossible. Yeah, I, I think the movie does a really great job of, of capturing what it means to be an astronaut, both in terms of knowledge, but in terms of outlook, in terms of determination, and I'm sure that's in no small part thanks to uh, having you and your team to help advise them. So uh, th thanks for uh, sitting down and talking with me. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Casper is an online retailer of mattresses for a fraction of the price. And if you haven't noticed, mattresses are expensive. Casper is changing that by cutting costs of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings on to all of us who just need a better night's sleep. Like me, I'll be honest, I've always enjoyed sleeping on the couch. And it's taken me a long way into adulthood to realize that it's not because my couch is comfortable, but because my bed's just not comfortable. Which might be because I can't afford to shell out $1,500 for a new mattress. Casper's mattresses cost between $500 for a twin size and $950 for a king size mattress. And the thing is, you can buy a Casper mattress risk-free, free delivery and returns within a 100-day window. Once you've tried testing a mattress in your home for 100 days, you're never going to go back to testing mattresses on a showroom floor for two minutes or back to sleeping on the couch. So to get $50 toward any new mattress purchase, visit casper.com world and use the promo code world. That's casper.com world, promo code world. Now, we're not NASA, but for the 2012 issue of Popular Mechanics, we put together a package looking at the logistics of the first human mission to Mars. I'm sitting down now with executive editor Peter Martin and editorial assistant Lara Sorokonich to talk about the things that we found most interesting. So we actually decided to take a look at kind of three problems that do come up in the movie that they're trying to solve. It's not a spoiler that one astronaut gets left behind. So he has a problem of his own, which is how do I keep myself alive? The character actually happens to be a botanist, so that... Um, is part of it. We're going to talk about that. And then kind of on the NASA side, um, they're trying to figure out what's the best way to actually get like more supplies to him from Earth. So kind of creating a mission from scratch to get out there. Okay. So the first big question is just how you actually get somebody to Mars in the first place. And Peter, I think you looked at this. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's 
it's all a lot of complicated math, but it really comes down to timing. And because Earth is moving at a different rate than Mars and that our orbit is a different size, we have to try to find the exact moment when the distance between the planets is shortest. And that happens about every two years. Um, and even then, it's still so far that it takes six or seven months or seven or eight months to get from Earth to Mars. But there are two ways that we've found to send spacecraft out there. And the first, the, the more traditional way is the Hohmann transfer, but it just launches the spacecraft into Mars's orbit and then you have to slam the brakes on. And it has to, have, otherwise the craft just goes shooting out into space and it's lost. Um, so you just it. basically just aim the craft at, at where Mars is? Or? You aim it where Mars is going to be. Uh, the jet propul NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory compared it in a way that actually really helped me understand it to a quarterback passing the ball in a game. So he's throwing the ball where the receiver is going to be. Um, but that takes a ton of gas, costs a lot of money. So they actually came up with an alternative method that's a little cheaper. It's a lot slower, but it's called ballistic capture. It takes more time, uses less fuel. But that when they actually send it out and they let Mars's gravity do the stopping. So instead of slamming on the brakes, uh, the craft is caught in Mars's gravity and then it just becomes, it gets placed in orbit around Mars. Um, so it takes a lot longer, saves a little money. Yeah, so basically you're, the brakes become gravity instead of fuel, but you have, to, you have to get the craft into a different place that makes the path longer and slower. Yeah, yeah, because first you have to do the Hohmann's transfer just to get the craft out into Mars's orbit, and then the ballistic capture starts from Mars's orbit and goes out there. So it actually shoots it out, stops it, and then sends it off again so that it can just get close enough to Mars to be grabbed in the gravitational field. Yeah, actually, I actually thought that was one of the most interesting things that uh, I found out when we were looking into Mars was that the amount of time it takes to travel from Earth to Mars isn't all just because it's so far away. A lot of the reason why these missions that they're planning are three or four years is more so because it takes that much time for the planets to get realigned in an optimal position. And so I thought that was actually cool and it's reflected in the movie a little bit. When Mark Watney gets stuck on Mars, they can't just turn right around and come back and get him. There are other reasons for that, but they talk about in the movie how um, you, you know, it's, it's not as simple as turning a car around and going back. You have to right. deal with the aligning of the planets. And um, it's it, it does take a long time to get to Mars either way, like Peter said, several months. But more so, it's because they want to spend the least amount of fuel and they want to really capitalize on gravity and um, those different forces that can assist the rocket in getting there. So I thought that was that's an interesting, actually true part of the movie that I never really thought about before this. But so that's, I mean, that's actually kind of the second thing that we looked at was he has to be able to survive on rations long enough for them to launch a whole new mission right. to get out there. And Larry, you actually did research into how you could sustain life on Mars. Right. Yeah. And so there are a number of different things that NASA has to look into for this. Um, one of the most interesting things I thought was this factor of growing food in space. Again, it's not something you really think about when you're thinking about Mars missions, but they do have to figure out how to have enough food. Um, and if you're going to be on a spaceship for three or four years, you can't pack all of that, no matter how big your spaceship is. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of what NASA is doing is looking into how to grow plants on other planets or more so in space environments. So inside of a spaceship as you're traveling there. And then once you land on a surface. Um, and have they actually pulled that off? Because so in the movie, he's a botanist 
And yeah. I, my first reaction was like, why would you even send a botanist? You can't grow anything on Mars. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually spoke to a planetary geologist named uh, Doug Ming over at NASA, and he's worked uh, previously with moon projects, and they did successfully grow plants in a moon environment, not in moon soil, but using the moon soil to nourish hydroponic plants. Um, and so that's something that's a little different from what's in the movie. NASA does know how to grow plants in an outer space environment, but they're almost always in a hydroponic um, setting. So, you know, this whole digging a hole in the ground, putting a seed in, not sure if that's going to work on Mars, but it's it's a possibility in the future. And definitely NASA has found ways to use nutrients from soil on the moon and hopefully someday from Mars um, to be able to grow plants in these foreign environments. Does, did, did they figure out how to grow anything that's actually like delicious? Yeah. So um, another thing I found out was that uh, if you're going to go to Mars, you're probably going to be on a vegetarian diet because it, you can't, you can only take so much food with you and meat spoils and so on and so forth. Um, so NASA has actually developed a whole list of uh, different plants that they know they can grow in space environments. Um, I have a couple here if you want to hear what's on the menu. Um, we have cabbage, um, mushrooms, onions, peanuts, soybeans, uh, strawberries, sweet potatoes. And so there's a large variety of things that astronauts will eat if they go to another planet. Um, NASA has done a really good job of uh, trying to figure out how to make a balanced diet out of things that the astronauts can grow. So they will be healthy. Uh, they just won't be able to eat steak. Do we know why they picked these things? Are they hardier vegetables are they um well some of them are hardier vegetables um a few of them are made so that they can help filter the air better um there are things that will contribute different nutrients into the soil environments um and so they're they're specially chosen um not only to keep astronauts nourished but to also help create uh recreate the the earth environment within wherever they're planted and then there are also some things that they've uh, genetically modified they they did things like make wheat shorter because it doesn't really make sense for you to have wheat that's you know as tall as you are when you're in as tiny a space as a as a spaceship so they have things like shorter wheat um <laughs> and and just very simple modifications that you wouldn't necessarily you know naturally think oh they need to conserve space or they need to modify things so they work better. But it is things that they're thinking of and that they're working on. Um, and this is a continuous project. The planetary scientist I talked to is currently part of the Mars Science Laboratory at NASA. So they're, you know, while they're looking into getting people to Mars, they're also looking into how to grow food there and how to keep people sustained on those planets. Um, so the last thing, I guess, that, that we looked into, and I actually looked into this a little bit, was uh, who actually is going to try and get people out there. So there's really like two different groups. There's the groups that are affiliated with states or countries. So the European Union has a space organization, China, Russia. We have NASA, obviously. But then there's also these organizations that have these like really intricate plans, how we can get people out to Mars kind of in like the most cost-effective or efficient way to actually then stay there and colonize. So I talked to... Dr. Robert Zubrin, who founded an organization called the Mars Society, and it's really based around this plan that he developed called Mars Direct, where you send uh, an unmanned ship out first that gets to Mars and then starts creating rocket fuel while it's on Mars. So then when you send a manned mission out, they can bring mostly just supplies and use that fuel to come home. And after you do that a few times, then you can build up like a store of supplies on the planet. There's something comforting about arriving to 
anything, even if it's just rocket fuel, yeah. just landing to an, an empty planet and like, all right, get started. Yeah, just big vats of rocket fuel. Do they know how to make rocket fuel already, or are they just sort of thinking like someday in the future we're gonna we're gonna know how to make rocket fuel and we're gonna make it before we get there? Well, I think it depends on how much you trust Robert Zubrin. Okay. Um, <laughs> I so don't know Robert Zubrin. <laughs> I, I mean, I read, I like read a little bit of his material, which was obviously over my head. But yeah, there is actually like a technical plan for how you make rocket fuel. And what it has to do with is certain elements that are present in Mars' atmosphere. Mm-hmm. If you've, you can force them to react with elements that we bring from home on that yeah. ship, and then it generates rocket fuel over time. And I think that's actually kind of part of the advantage is that it does take a while. You know, it's going to take a while to like mm-hmm. build up a significant amount of rocket fuel, but when it takes a long time to get there, then by the time the manned mission does make it out there, then you're, you're in good shape. There's a lot of fuel waiting there. There was also an organization, and they're called Inspiration Mars, which I think is like the least fair name for this, but their whole plan isn't even about getting to Mars, like getting people on the planet. It's just doing a flyby. So their their plan is all about this alignment that happens every now and then where it's actually a very short journey. But their plan is just to send one man and one woman and just like swoop by the planet and like wave as they go by while the distance is still really short and then just come right back. Well, they're going to see Venus too, right? It's a bonus. Yeah, that's bonus true. You don't get, you don't bonus get to trip to Venus. <laughs> Two planets for one? Huh. Also, it's not going to happen, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah. I don't really trust any of these guys. <laughs> Except yeah. for NASA. There are a lot of reasons that you should know about Stamps.com, but let me give you one. It's a harrowing journey to get to the post office. This is the first day of fall, which means everything's changing. We're coming up on the holiday season, and that means lots of stuff to mail. It also means snow, sleet, hail. So here's an idea. This year, stay home, stay dry, stay happy. Use Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage right from your own computer and printer. You don't have to go anywhere. They'll even send you digital scale, which is something that, I don't know, I always worry about because who knows what an ounce feels like. Right now, if you use the promo code WORLD, you can take advantage of a special offer. A four-week trial with a $110 bonus that includes that digital scale and up to $55 of free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the page and type in WORLD. That's Stamps.com. Enter WORLD. So there's one more of these groups that I think is worth talking about. And actually, I think to do something a little bit different, we should play a game of Stupid or Amazing with this organization, Mars One. So this is a group that wants to send people on a one-way mission to Mars. Their plan is to have people apply for this mission, which they did. And uh, then they're going through the selection process to get it down to a set or six sets of four astronauts. But they've got some strange rules. Maybe the the biggest thing is that they're actually planning to fund this with a reality TV show by selling advertising, which they compare to broadcasting the Olympics. On their website, they say, look how much money the Olympics made. This is going to be people going to Mars. Obviously, we'll make enough money. The first manned mission is supposed to cost $6 billion and launch in 2026. And then they're going to send four more people every two years, presumably so the reality show can keep going. According to them, it's supposed to launch in 2026. According right. to some scientist who looked at it, he said it would at least be 100 years before that happened. 100? So, which probably qualifies this immediately as stupid. Okay. I did not know about the reality TV show. Like, you're talking about, oh, you know, everybody gets to go to Mars. Everyone has a chance. You're like, oh, that's good. I can get on board with that. Peace, love, and everything. And then they're like, we're going to make it a reality TV show. And you're like, oh. But I think anyone doing this wants, they don't mind attention. So I think then also being on a reality TV 
It's not like someone meek is going to apply to <laughs> get the media attention of being sent out to Mars to die and then find out, oh, I have to be on TV too. I don't know. Couldn't you see like a brainy scientist type who just wants to go because science and then now they have to be on a reality? I mean, they're going to be if you're cut saying, because they're not cool enough or sassy enough for the reality TV show. If you're saying, I think I should be one of 24 humans to represent our species on another planet, mm-hmm. but you're not willing to be on a television show, that's part of the selection process right there. I and so you said so you said a journey to just die on Mars. So you think they're definitely dying when they well, get there? They or, will, they will die route. there, whether it's whether it's through fault of the program or <laughs> the aging process. That no one's no back. one's bringing them yeah. back, so they will die there. But yeah, I think they'll die there because this. I mean, they're not going to die there because they're going to die here because they're not going to go anywhere. Yeah. Um, if anything happened, they would certainly die in transit or like in the first twenty <laughs> seconds of getting there when someone forgot and Just opened the door. <laughs> These are purely untrained people. Well, part of it, so the, the reality show is supposed to be following them for ten years as they receive their astronaut training. Yeah. Which is crazy. So supposedly so they like will the be hard trained. Astronauts. <laughs> I just can't help but think there are very selective processes for astronauts and there are very selective processes for reality tv shows and you really and respect reality tv <laughs> they don't they don't well, that much no the real housewives of whatever city you know how many people they must go through before they find those five crazy women to as put stringent together. a process in everything astronauts. and so i just don't see how your reality tv stars and your astronauts overlap at all in that venn diagram they there is no venn in that diagram well they're probably dismissing the astronaut part they're probably just looking at this as a reality tv series well i have to say though i do think it's kind of amazing that they thought of this as the way to fund it i mean like they're actually being pretty forward thinking in what are like surefire ways to make money and it's true that if like we knew that people were going to be going to mars lots and lots of people would watch that on tv i actually think the part that seems stupid is there's always like weird little idiosyncrasies to their plan that kind of like I mean, we we saw The Martian, right? Right. And the whole movie is about, like, every little minute detail that can go wrong and how it takes, like, the smartest people alive to solve it. I don't know. I just, I think there's a reason why only a few people get to be astronauts. And I can't, <laughs> I, I just, like, I'm not fit to go to Mars. No one in this room is fit to go to That's Mars. It's a little unfair. I hey. just, truthfully i just don't think so and if you were you would be in training for it and so this idea that like we're gonna send some random people who magically learn how to speak english in 10 years to mars to also star in a reality tv show is just like i don't know but priorities are off here but i think i think the reality i think what someone needs to say amazing for this because i think the idea the, kevin said that i wasn't listening to kevin <laughs> <laughs> But no, but the, we need, Mars One is not amazing. The idea of Mars One and the scam of Mars One as run by the guy who started it, that is amazing. This could make him a lot of money in some way. It has to. It certainly got him notoriety. Um, you know, if all you want is your fame, he got that. That part's amazing. Um, the fact that he has us talking about it is amazing, that it's been in the media. The, these people that are finalists have been interviewed. There's a, either The Moth for This American Life, but there's some woman on there talking about why yeah. she's going to go and... It's like somebody sad who sits around and it's ready to die on Mars. But it's it's a, it is considering the way society works now and everything is crowdfunded. This is an amazing idea. Yeah, that's what, yeah. I think I think the idea is good. I mean, I also think that like there is something to be said for the fact that it is a way to inspire. There are lots of people that want to go to Mars that could never be astronauts, but to like give them some agency in this, even if it's the illusion of agency, yeah. is probably good for the for what 
ultimately gets us to Mars, right? I mean, if there's like 200,000 more people, however many applicants they got, that are invested in going to Mars eventually, even if Mars 1 explodes on liftoff, maybe their support will help NASA get there. That got dark. <laughs> we should uh, note that the 200,000 was pretty much debunked, and I think, <laughs> they, I think they said it was 2,700. Who applied? Uh, who actually applied? Well, yeah, Mars One circulated. They they circulated the figures of two hundred thousand, and everyone just accepted it. There was a story in in Medium that talked about uh, there only being twenty seven hundred people. <laughs> so oh either so either they're liars or they can't count. Neither of which is good for planning a space mission. Yeah, but yeah. great for reality TV. Maybe. Maybe there is some overlap in their screening process. <laughs> While we're poking holes in the whole Mars One thing, uh, if this is all based on their reality TV series, apparently they no longer have a uh, relationship with the reality TV producers that they started with. So there's no one to create this show. There never was a broadcast partner to air it. Um, one of the other very shady things that did not come up but should come up, if anyone doesn't know about Mars One, the finalists that are on there, it's such a money-making venture for Mars One that they ask them to donate 75% of any funds that they receive for interviews or photo shoots or anything like that. So if you have an appearance fee, you're supposed to give 75% to Mars One, um, which I guess kind of makes sense because what do you need money for? Yeah. After this, you so train, then you go to Mars. I guess if I'm hearing you right, I think you think this is stupid. Yeah, it's got to be stupid. It's terrible. You know, I was ready to come in here and be like, I support everybody can go to Mars and we're all one humanity. But I found out about the reality TV show portion of this. And that is just so stupid. I just I just can't fathom how how anybody is not laughing hysterically at the very concept of this. It's so polar opposite science and reality TV. I don't think it's true that you thought everyone could go to Mars because <laughs> you said that the people in this room were not qualified. But to everybody go to Mars. had the opportunity to apply. I still think the reality TV show is maybe the most amazing part, but I think the gulf between what it takes to do reality TV and to get humans to another planet this is definitely stupid. Yeah. But we would all watch. I mean, the second they started the launch countdown, we would watch. Yeah. Yeah. Successful. So we unanimously think it's stupid, but we'd watch it. Yeah. The end. All right. Thanks, guys. And that's our show. Higher World Works is produced by Jack Dillon. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Andy Bowers from Panoply. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, and while you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. And if you want to read more about The Martian, check out our website, popularmechanics.com slash podcasts. While you're there, you can subscribe to the print and digital edition of Popular Mechanics magazine, for just $13.99 for one year. I'm Kevin Dupsick. Thanks for listening.